Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we're learning about the multitude of applications for muons, finding out about the minimal fleet problem plus estimating the cost of climate change. This is The Nature Podcast for the 24th of May, 2018. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Now, we all know how frustrating it can be to wait ages for a taxi. And we all know about the traffic problems in a lot of cities. What if there was a solution to both? Ellie Mackay has been finding out about the latest research into optimising city vehicle networks. I'm standing outside King's Cross train station here in the heart of London. It's a busy morning and as I'm sure you can hear there is a lot of traffic about. I can see a fair few taxicabs too and no doubt many of the people who've ordered them have done so via an app on their phone. Now waiting for a taxi to pick us up is a minor inconvenience. But how do the dispatch systems calculate how many vehicles are needed at any given time? And how do taxi company owners juggle the demand for rides with the cost of keeping countless cars and drivers on the road? Their daily challenge is to make sure there are enough vehicles in their fleet to serve all their customers without delay, but not to have so many that they're losing profits. And of course, an excess of vehicles also creates traffic and pollution problems. It's a mathematical conundrum known as the minimum fleet problem, and it's something that Mo Vazafe from the Sensible City Lab at MIT has been trying to solve. His team have developed a new solution to this urban traffic puzzle, a computer algorithm they've been testing in New York, which they say could make taxi networks much more efficient. So, Mo, when you're looking at a city like New York, for example, why is this minimum fleet problem so difficult to solve? So when you look at New York City, there are around 300,000 to 400,000 taxi trips a day served by around 13,000 cabs on the road. Traditional optimization approaches are not designed to be able to handle such a a huge number. You can only solve this problem for a few thousand uh, trips, uh, considering the frameworks that have been designed in the literature so far. So if you want to solve this problem in real world scenarios, we had to like rethink the problem and design it in a way that it is scalable and accurate. 
So your solution is different because it's designed to handle these huge numbers of trips and you call it a network-based solution. What does that mean? So we have reformulated the problem in a way that the problem becomes a network science problem. So basically we have a fleet of vehicles that are being shared by all these trips, but all the trips remain independent. And the way we construct this network is each node is a trip and the links between the nodes represent whether uh, trips could be shared by the same vehicle. So if you consider a pair of nodes and there is a link from uh, node A to node B, it means that a vehicle can serve first the trip A and then go and serve uh, trip B. So the computer algorithm then finds the best pathway through that network? Yeah, so it's decisions that we make for each individual car is affected by the whole system. So the problem of finding uh, the minimum fleet size becomes finding efficient set of paths, chains on this network that connect all these dots, all these nodes, and they cover all these network. And so in your paper, you discuss some of the complexities that you include, the ride duration, the trip frequencies, the locations, and the distances. How long does it take for the computer to run these simulations and and how does it respond to the fact that you've got new requests coming through all the time? So we have two scenarios. We have offline and online optimizations. So for the offline, we have the knowledge of trips one day in advance. So this could be used, for example, for a delivery service. But in the online case, which is more relevant to on-demand mobility services, you have to assign vehicles to rides where you only have trip information in the next minute or so. Uh, And we show that in this paper on on a very uh, simple desktop computer, you can solve this in a very uh, short time, like uh, on the order of half a second. And so to test this algorithm, you've applied it to a year's worth of data from New York City. So this is 150 million previous taxi trips, which is about three to 400,000 a day. And you've looked at both offline and online systems. So that's trips you know in advance, as well as live bookings. What did the algorithm show? In the offline model, we show that consistently throughout the year, you you are able to provide the same level of service, uh, reducing the number of cabs by uh, 40% compared to what we have on the road uh, today. And in the online model, we still have 30% reduction in the number of cabs while maintaining the level of service. And the level of service means that the percentage of people served within a certain delay remains the same as the original. So essentially, according to your algorithm, New York City could function fully with several thousand fewer taxis on the road? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so these reductions of 30 and 40% are pretty big numbers. But you discuss in the paper some of the factors that may limit us from achieving this maximum efficiency. What about driver behaviour? What if someone decides to collect the closest person to them or take their preferred route rather than what the algorithm tells them? So we are limited by the behaviour that we are observing in this historical data. But this is still, I would say, would be applicable. One year is long enough to capture most of the cases, but there still may, might be actually fundamental problems. I'll give you an example. So if you have a sport match and after the match, suddenly you have a huge number of diverging requests, uh, then you have to add more vehicles to the system to be able to serve these trips. And also this system is assuming one central dispatcher for a single large fleet. So doesn't that encourage a monopoly in the market? 
not necessarily. This could be an agreement between companies for for efficiency. As we have showed in the paper, even if you have few players, you still get most of the efficiency that you expect. So we have considered two and three in in the paper, and it shows that you only have six seven percent reduction and and in, in the efficiency. Okay, so you're still looking at twenty twenty five percent fewer vehicles required than currently, even with several competitors all sharing that information. That is correct. Okay, so that's great for taxi companies and could help traffic problems in big cities. But thinking ahead, you also think this algorithm could be especially relevant for maintaining sustainable cities in the future. Sure. So、uh, we have a self-driving revolution ahead of us, and I think this work becomes even more relevant in that、uh, scenario. You're directly translating these algorithms' suggested decision into a fleet of autonomous vehicles serving these trips while keeping the footprint in the city as low as possible. That was Mo Vazifay from the Sensible City Lab at MIT speaking to reporter Ellie Mackay. You can read the full paper over at nature.com/nature. Next up, reporter Lizzie Gibney has been getting to grips with an emerging measurement method: muography. When X-ray radiation was discovered in 1895, it revolutionised medicine. For the first time, doctors could see inside the body without cutting it open. Now scientists are harnessing another kind of radiation to peer inside much larger structures in ways that have never been possible before. This time, the radiation is made up of particles known as muons, heavier cousins to electrons. Which are produced naturally when energetic cosmic rays slam into atoms in Earth's atmosphere. Muons can pass through hundreds of meters of rock unhindered, and by observing how the particles interact with the matter they pass through, scientists can see inside otherwise impenetrable objects without damaging them. For years, detector technology wasn't good enough for the technique to be very practical, but that's now changing. Scientists last year used muons to discover a new chamber hidden inside the Great Pyramid at Giza, and now the method, known as muography, is booming. I headed down to a conference where a who's who of muographers gathered to discuss the rapidly growing range of applications, as well as how companies are trying to get in on the game. Here's Christina Carlaganu from the Laboratoire de Physique de Clermont-Ferrand, who's using muons to image volcanoes. The process is precisely the same as when you make an X-ray in a hospital. So you just have your volcano and you put a detector and you see how transparent the volcano is in terms of muons. So you know the、uh, the flux of muons that are produced in the atmosphere. They are normally、um, well, there are lots of muons produced in the atmosphere. They are natural radiation, and then they propagate. Some of them are、um, stopped. By during the propagation through the volcano, and the number of muons that are stopped. Tells us something about the density distribution in the volcano. Denser, voila, more are stopped. Muography allows Christina to see deep inside volcanoes, gaining vital information about their density and therefore their structure. By mapping where lava channels lie within the mountain, for example, scientists may eventually be able to better predict eruptions. If you think in terms of、uh, cities like Naples. Uh, which might be very well affected by explosions,、uh, eruptions by Vesuvio. You, you, you understand that it's very important to understand how such eruptions could occur and behave in order to limit the、uh, the risk for people living there. It's not just volcanoes that muographers are studying in Naples. 
physicist Giulio Saracino from the University of Naples Federico II in Italy is using the technique to probe deep inside a different aspect of Neapolitan geology. First of all, we started to measure known cavities. The cavities he's talking about lie beneath an area of Naples known as Monte Ecchia, a settlement that dates back to the 8th century BC. Some cavities came from locals excavating rock to make their houses, but they ended up serving as temples and water storage. Others were purposefully built. There was even an escape tunnel from the royal palace. By studying how muons passed through the rock from multiple vantage points, Giulio was able to find signs of new cavities within the complex structure. In the last measurement, we believe that uh, we discovered uh, cavities that uh, people that works there suspected to be there, but they were not the proof. Similar techniques are already being used in mining to reveal underground reservoirs and unknown deposits of ores. Here's Christina again. I think it's already used in um, geophysical exploration, mining, and it's a slightly different application, but there are lots of industrial applications also. So um, there are lots of presentations today about uh, those industrial applications. So I think it's, uh, the field is huge, actually. Another potential industrial use is in the management of nuclear waste. For safety reasons, these potentially dangerous byproducts of generating nuclear energy are stored in impenetrable containers. But this raises the question, how do you keep an eye on the material once it's sealed off? One answer could be, you guessed it, muography. David Mahon from the University of Glasgow and a founder of spin-off company Linkios explained. The containers themselves are self-shielded, so they are designed to keep the radiation from within from getting out into the environment. So that naturally stops X-rays and gamma rays from penetrating. But to get information about what is deep in the centre, muons are pretty much the only radiation which can do that. So we can pick out instances where there's a piece of uranium fuel that is inside this drum, which perhaps it shouldn't be. So muons can help to spot stray uranium that might accidentally corrode the containers and cause leaks. But they can also help to avoid deliberate catastrophes. There's a lot of work in international safeguards as well. So for a particular waste form, you could dry store it in large uh, storage casks. And it's important to know that what the individual country says is in that container is actually in there. And no one has diverted some of the uh, radioactive material for, uh, for example, for making bombs or what. All of these emerging applications of muography have been made possible, in large part, by the growth of fundamental research. Detectors have shrunk from the size of a room to a tabletop and now run on very little energy. We had a huge progress in detectors. Uh, those are, were very much improved by experiments like the experiments on LEC, Large Hadron Collider. So uh, that was the first thing. And now we have also much better understanding of the atmospheric muon flux, of the cosmic ray flux and so on, because there was also a huge progress in what we call astroparticle physics. So now we can put everything together and try to make imaging. But merging techniques from high-energy physics with new fields, such as geology or archaeology, is not always easy. Here's Giulio again. Of course, it's a new technology. It comes from high-energy physics uh, world. So this is something, of course, when the first time I, I say to people from to geology side, we have nuance uh, technology. What nuance are? <laughs> ah, and so we have to start from the <laughs> from very beginning. 
Meography still has a way to go to prove itself, but there's a real sense of excitement surrounding the field, and no one knows quite where muon imaging might find itself useful. Meography is addressing challenges which until now have never had a solution. So in many ways, Meography is creating a lot of different markets, and I can only imagine in the future that lots more companies will enter the field as well. That was Lizzie Gibney speaking with David Mahon, Giuliano Saracino and Christina Kalogano. Later in this week's show, we'll be finding out how much money the world could save by halting global warming. Before then, though, Sharmini Bundell is here with this week's research highlights. Some feathered dinosaurs may have deliberately designed their nests in a doughnut pattern in order to avoid crushing their own eggs, according to new research. A team of scientists looked at the layout of over 40 fossilised nests made by different types of oviraptorosaurs. The nests were arranged with the eggs laid out in a ring and a space in the centre. The larger the dino, the larger the ring. Some of the biggest oviraptorosaurs weighed in at over a tonne, but laid eggs with very weak shells. The researchers suggest that the empty centre of the doughnut shape may have supported the bulk of these hefty dinosaurs, preventing them from crushing their future offspring. Do not forget to read more of that excellent research over at Biology Letters. The secret to what makes ice so slippery may have been solved, thanks to a team of European researchers. They measured the friction of a steel ball sliding over some ice at temperatures ranging from minus 100 to 0 degrees Celsius. At the coldest end of the scale, the ice demonstrated a high level of friction, but this friction decreased as the temperature warmed up, with the ice being its slippiest at minus 7 degrees. Investigating the slidey surface revealed water molecules weakly bound to the surrounding ice. These molecules roll like tiny spheres along the top of the ice, helping speed skaters to glide effortlessly along, or propelling unsuspecting pedestrians to a tumble. Slide over to the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters for more. How much money will climate change cost? This simple question is crucial in deciding what action needs to be taken. Take the Paris Climate Agreement formed in 2015. So what we do in these agreements is we set out these very specific targets. And when we do that, we really want to understand, okay, what are going to be the benefits of actually achieving these targets? And how do those compare to the costs? This is Marshall Burke a climate economist at Stanford University in the US. He's interested in how the costs of climate change stack up, depending on what our targets are. The Paris Agreement's target is to limit the world's warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, and to pursue efforts to limit the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. What's the impact of limiting warming to 1.5 versus 2 degrees? Well, Marshall has just published a study that estimates how the global economy would be affected by these different levels of temperature rise. But how do researchers get from a physical understanding of climate change to its impacts on goods and services around the world? The way we do it in our study is we first use history as a laboratory. We use almost a half century of data on economic output from countries around the world And we use these data to study how have countries responded historically to increases in warming. And what that allows us to do is then say, okay, moving forward, if we 
plan to experience 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming or 2 degrees Celsius, how will countries respond? This approach avoids having to simulate how economic behaviour responds to climate change. Instead, it looks to the past, using historical responses to temperature variations to infer what might happen in the future. It's very clever. So the advantage of this method is uh, it folds all goods and services into one number. This is Max Alfhammer, an environmental economist at UC Berkeley, who wasn't involved in this study. Both Max and Marshall point out that despite this study's advantages, it has important limitations. For one, its historical approach can't account for unprecedented changes to the climate. Things that may happen in the future that the economy hasn't seen before. For example, if sea level rise floods coastal cities around the world. Max also points out that historical responses to various temperatures might not be indicative of what humans do in the future as the planet continues to warm. If humans come up with new ways to adapt, that could drive down the costs of climate change. So trying to figure out uh, what the consequences of adaptation are is really difficult. You need a crystal ball to figure out what technologies are by end of century. And uh, as a card-carrying scientist, I just don't believe in crystal balls. With these limitations in mind then, does Marshall think that his model is likely to give an estimate of impacts that is too high or too low? My gut instinct is that our numbers might be too low. Um, historically, we have not seen a lot of evidence of adaptation. On the other hand, climate change is going to bring a lot of things that we have not seen historically, again, sea level rise probably being the best example, and these things are going to be really hard to deal with, and we're going to have to spend a lot of money to adapt uh, to these things. So um, my gut feeling is that our numbers, as large as they are, could even be a, a lower bound on the, the overall damages. So how large are we talking? What would be the difference between limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees versus 2 degrees? So our main estimate is that by 2100, so by the end of this century, the world will be about 3 to 4% wealthier under the most ambitious target, the 1.5C target, as compared to the 2C target. That might not sound like much, but it represents about $20 trillion in cumulative benefits between now uh, and the end of century. $20 trillion. The extra 0.5 degrees of warming between 1.5 and 2 degrees might not sound like much, but studies like Marshall's suggest just how big an impact it could have on the world. But how do the costs of this extra 0.5 degrees of warming compare to the costs of preventing it? Some scholars have estimated that it will cost an additional nearly half a trillion dollars to achieve the 1.5 degree target compared to the, uh, the 2 degree target. So by our calculations, the benefits of achieving these ambitious targets vastly outweigh the costs. At the moment, though, the world isn't looking like it's heading towards either the 1.5 or the 2 degree target. Temperatures have already increased by about one degree, and even if every country sticks to its Paris climate pledges, our best guess is that the world will warm by about three degrees. If we get three degrees by end of century, that's going to cost another 5% of global GDP. And in an unmitigated climate scenario world, so in a world in which we fail to mitigate at all, sort of a, a business-as-usual scenario, Again, that's going to cost an additional uh, 5 to 10% of GDP. So the consequences of not limiting warming uh, start to stack up pretty dramatically. And these are just the consequences that studies like this can capture. 
This study assesses how GDP may be affected by climate change. But GDP, gross domestic product, is just an assessment of a country's goods and services. And Max stresses that there are some impacts of climate change that GDP doesn't easily describe. How do we put a dollar value on the increased incidence of, of conflict? Uh, how do we put a value uh, on biodiversity? So if climate change wipes out species because their habitats get uh, destroyed or changed, what's the value of that? That's to me the next frontier of the of the research in climate change impacts. Any study that looks into the future will have limitations and uncertainties, and this paper is no exception. But it joins a body of literature showing that the costs of climate change dramatically outweigh the costs of halting it. In spite of the Paris Agreement, emissions are still rising and the world is still warming. And for Marshall, his own results are a serious cause for concern. You know, I, I'm, I'm the dad of young kids and this is the earth they're going to inhabit in the future. And when we see uh, what an unmitigated climate change scenario will do to economic output and to livelihoods around the world, uh, I absolutely worry about that. That was Marshall Burke, who's at Stanford University. And before him, Max Alfhammer, who's at the University of California, Berkeley, both in the US. You can read Marshall's study over at nature.com forward slash nature. You'll also find a News and Views forum where Max and another economist offer their differing views on Marshall's approach, plus a nature editorial on the topic. Right then, listeners, it's uh, the end of the show. And of course, that means it's time for the news chat. And, uh, and I'm joined here in the studio by Davide Castelvecchi, uh, the physical sciences reporter here at Nature. Hi, Davide. Hello. Right. For our first story, then we're going to blast off into outer space and to the far side of the moon. Yes, this is a very ambitious mission, it, and it's only the first leg of it. It's a probe that will uh, basically hover above the other side of the moon, the, the, the one that's not visible from Earth, waiting for the second part, which is a lander, which will get there sometime around uh, the end of the year, and will deploy also a rover. So yeah, so who's been developing this probe then, and uh, what's it called? It's primarily the Chinese Academy of Sciences. Uh, I hope I'm, I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation, it's called Quichao, which means magpie bridge. It's the name of a, a, a traditional folktale and also the name of the uh, Chinese equivalent of Valentine's Day. And uh, interestingly, it also carries a number of uh, international experiments. Um, one in particular, uh, which is very interesting, is, is a cosmology experiment from the Netherlands. Yeah, and that's the uh, the snappily titled Netherlands China Low Frequency Explorer. Then, and uh, and what's that going to do, Davide? So it will uh, take advantage of the fact that when you're on the other side of the moon, uh, you are not exposed to the radio noise that comes from the Earth, which which tends to leak out, um, and in fact, sometimes in the past has been there, there's been reports, for example, that the Cassini mission picked up BBC Radio Four on its way to Saturn. Goodness. Well, what will this protection from radio noise help us understand better? The idea is that from outer space in general, you can access uh, frequencies of radio waves that are not accessible from the Earth's surface because they tend to get blocked by the atmosphere. And in addition to that, there's all the, all the radio noise that you would still get in Earth orbit. And these wavelengths are supposed to contain information about the very first 200 million years of the universe's 
um, evolution. Oh, really? And is this something we've not been able to necessarily look at before then? It is the black spot. It's the, the mystery period. We've been able to see, to observe, you know, the afterglow of the Big Bang, which is about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. But from then, from that time to several hundred million years later, when ordinary um, astronomy picks up, that is completely terra incognita. All right, so if that's one of the experiments on the probe, then uh, what, what else is it sort of taking with it? It is also releasing two uh, smaller probes from the mothership, which will orbit the moon itself. And they will also test technologies to study this, this um, you know, the dark ages of the universe. And you said this is part one of kind of a, a two-parter then. Uh, what, what's part two? So part two is the lander. And sometime around the end of the year, it will land on the, on the far side of the moon. It will be the first spacecraft to get there. Because, you know, all the Apollo missions and all the unmanned probes that have ever landed on the moon always were within sight of Earth because you can't have communications with the far side of the moon directly. You need this, this additional probe, um, which will establish a link. So this is kind of a very ambitious sort of set of space missions then from China. Why, why, uh, why the moon? Why are we looking at it again? There is so much science to be done on the moon. Um, lunar exploration has been done. I mean, it started in the 1960s, but it mostly was done with prehistoric technology for, for current standards. And there's a lot to be understood about the geological evolution of the moon. And for example, um, uh, one mystery that uh, is still unsolved is why the far side of the moon is so different. It looks quite different from the near side of the moon. Uh, which has fewer and larger craters, whereas the far side, it's pockmarked with many smaller craters. And nobody knows why. Okay, then well, let's, uh, let's head back to Earth for our second story today. And uh, in the podcast, listeners, you've already heard uh, Adam talking about climate change and economics. Um, this is also a sort of climate change related story, but it, it couldn't be more different, really, I suppose. It revolves around a, a special team of SEAL scientists. And that's easy for me to say. Uh, what's this story all about? It's about the deep ocean, which we actually know not as well as the surface of the moon, it turns out. And um, the, so this is uh, a group of scientists, uh, primarily from the UK, who recruited a number of seals from Antarctica, and they placed sensors, they glued sensors to their heads. And as, as, the, as the seals uh, dived into deep waters, the, the sensors recorded the conditions there. And where specifically are these seals based? They're based in West Antarctica, and they uh, swim in the Amundsen Sea, which the researchers are interested in because they want to look at how the deep ocean current, the, the circumpolar deep water, changes over the seasons. Well, why, why are they looking at this in particular? Then, what is it about this, this deep water current? A lot of researchers expect that as the uh, climate changes, these current, these deep uh, oceanic currents might hasten the melting of the West Antarctic ice sheet and in particular of, of two very large uh, glaciers there, uh, accelerating the discharge of ice into the ocean. All right, and well, I mean, we can't skip around any longer. Why, why are they using seals for this then? Because it is so damn hard to do research in that part of the world with oceanographic ships. You can go there when the weather permits, but uh, the seals are there year-round and they dive year-round. So 
uh, that way. The researchers were able, to, in nine months, they were able to get more data than uh, you know, previous experiments got in the previous 10 years. The researchers revealed that the current is bigger and warmer and saltier in the winter months than it is in the summer. And this is research that came out uh, in a paper last week. And how will all this data be used then? Well, the hope is that the data may help to uh, refine the climate models that predict how fast the West Antarctic ice sheet will melt. If it, if it were to melt completely, sea levels globally would, would rise an average of three metres. Thanks, Davide. Listeners, for all the latest science news, head over to nature.com slash news. That's it for another show. But before we go, there's just time to say hello and thank you to Claire Hughes, who said on Twitter that The Nature Podcast is one of her current favourite shows. Nice one, Claire. Let us know your thoughts on the show at Nature Podcast. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.